So, so how far was the country set back by the fatal mistake, as you said, as you explained it, that the DA made in the election by fighting uh, not not on the strategy that, that you'd been planning. And just, just, sorry, by way of background, uh, Helen, I can't, again, you probably won't remember this, but it must be 15, 20 years ago, you were at the Carlton Center in the middle of Johannesburg, where uh, I came along, I never really went to political events often, and there you were, and I thought, uh, ex-colleague, let's go and see what she was doing, and I can remember the hostility of the, of the questioning, was, which showed me that the media was certainly not the media we used to remember, but very, very one-sided. And at that stage, we spoke afterwards and you said that the, sh the face of the DA would change dramatically into the future. Uh, and that also the color of the faces of the DA. And it duly happened. But many people look back at that previous, the past election, and now wonder whether the DA has gone back into some kind of a white lager. Look, absolutely not. And the irony is that we have so many incredible black leaders in so many key places. But the way the, the media functions is they only give publicity to a black leader who's fighting the DA. And then you think, oh, well, that must be the sum total of black leaders. I mean, if you look at our whole suite of mayors, our whole suite of provincial leaders, it's so obvious that a large number of them are black South Africans. But the, that's irrelevant to us. The point is they are good. The mayor of um, Johannesburg, Dr. Mpopalatse, is a case in point. No one ever sees her because she's not fighting with us. She's living out our values and driving the vision in Johannesburg with a nine-party coalition. Dit wil gedunvies. And believe me, when the voters hand us these impossible coalitions with tiny parties that have no political philosophy and are in there really to get positions for themselves, and I'm not exaggerating, in 80% of the cases, that is what it is. To run a coalition like that and try to get Johannesburg on the road again is unbelievably difficult. I did it in Cape Town when we took over Cape Town from the ANC in 2006. Then there's Randall Williams in Chwani. There was Ngababanga in Nelson Mandela Bay. And I can continue. Jordan Hill Lewis is the first white male mayor the DA has ever had in Cape Town, has ever had. If you look at Siviwe Guajube, if you look at Nokoma Sipa, I mean, I can go through all the lists, but it's demeaning to them. They are not in the DA because they want to be held up as black leaders. They are in the DA because they believe in our values and they have come through very, very tough contestations in order to emerge in the only party that puts our MPs and MPLs and others through a grueling test to make it to the top. Soli Musimanga is our Gauteng leader. I mean, all over we have excellent black leaders who are doing a most outstanding job. And the media never look at them. They look at Pumzile Van Damme who's fighting with John Steenhuizen. And that's what they think is the sum total of black people in the DA. It's just lunatic. Thanks for, for doing that. Now, we are in KZN, where you've won your first municipality. Mm. Chris Pappas, in fact, uh, his parents farm very close to this area, very close to, I used to buy feed from his, from his father, uh, Mike, in Moy River. And on, a, on a, a little presentation I did with the local 
Howick community the other day. A lady said, this new mayor of ours is, is quite extraordinary because her helper said, he's sent by God. And she said, what do you mean by that? And she said, when I open my eyes, I see he's white. But when I close my eyes, I know he's black. <laughs> Are you breeding more of these multilingual, multicultural South Africans within the party that are future Chris Pappases? Well, people are attracted to the DA because they're attracted to our value set. And they know, like Chris Pappas knows, that he will be judged on his value, not on the color of his skin or any other criterion. And I'm fascinated to hear that uh, a Zulu lady, I presume, is saying, well, I, I see he's white, but when I close my eyes, I think he's black. If that's how you do your tr transition to non-racialism, well, hallelujah. That's what we stand for. We want people to be judged for what they are, not for what they look like. And in this modern, mad, woke time, you know, it's the opposite of what Martin Luther King says. It's you judge people by the color of their skin, not the content of their character. We stand for judging people by the content of their character. And I'm delighted, and we could not have won that municipality unless a lot of black people had voted for Chris Pappas. And I have no doubt that they voted for him because they believed he would be good and help turn around that completely failed municipality of Umgeni, which he is now doing. So that is what we want South Africa to be, where you say, who is the best candidate? Who's going to fix this? The quality of government makes an enormous difference to my life. It creates a context in which I can succeed through my own efforts, and we better get the best people in there. And that is the value set we stand for. Just take us through the, the progress that you've made since winning or since becoming mayor in Cape Town and how the DA's uh, strategy has actually expanded. Well, we, when I became mayor in Cape Town, I won by a single vote, but only if the PAC abstained. And I've since become very good friends with Bennett Yoko, who was the PAC person, who I visited in his shack at the time in Kosovo, in Cape Town, to ask him if he wouldn't please abstain the next day at the election. Because if he abstained, I could win. And I didn't think it would ever happen, but I got home later that night and I said to my husband, you know, I could be the mayor tomorrow. I better write a few words in case I'm elected. And I sat down at nine o'clock and wrote a speech there. And that's how it happened. Then I was in charge of the seven-party coalition, which was crazy. I mean, I had the religious fundamentalists on all extremes. I had a party that was broken off to the left of the ANC together with the Freedom Front Plus. I mean, I had this range of parties, seven parties, who fundamentally disagreed. And we had to get out there and turn around the city and get it on the right direction and fix the city center and get service delivery happening again with that kind of slender majority that required Bennett Joko to abstain in every critical election. And we had to hold our thing together as well. And of course, we just merged with the old NNP, which meant that we had a war going on inside our party as well. And when you have all of that happening, it's really hard to focus on this is the plan, this is where we're going, this is the service delivery strategy. But we managed to pull it together and do it. And then the next year, I was elected leader of the party. And then in 2009, we did lots of polling in the background. And it was clear that I had the best chance of winning the province. And then I stood as the uh, premier two and a half years after I'd been elected as the mayor. And then we won 
by an overall majority in the Western Cape, which was huge. We got 51, 50 point something percent. It was always tiny margins. I specialize in tiny margins, believe me. And I, I won there, and, um, and then we had a province that we could show could work. And we all pulled together because now we had our real majority and it was stunning. We could do that. And I think years of not stealing the money, years of spending it on what it should be spent on, years of pulling things together show in the end. And that was the strategy to say if government makes a difference, it's not there to control you. It's there to make sure the basics work, that you have water, that you have electricity, that you have sewerage, that you have public transport, that things work, that refuse is removed, and that schools function and hospitals function so that you can have all that as a platform you can take for granted to get on with your life. And when that happens, business has confidence, they invest, economic growth, jobs, that whole virtuous cycle happens. And that is now what we're seeing in the Western Cape and Cape Town. And it's critical for South Africa. One of the most impressive things uh, recently talking to the executive mayor of Cape Town was to compare the rates that we as, as uh, householders pay and businesses pay and how good governance has had a massive impact and the rates in Johannesburg are much higher than Cape Town now, um, both for households and uh, it, that, that practical thing just cannot be, uh, cannot be overemphasized. But Helen, I've got, as you can see from the time, I've got about... 10 minutes of my time left, and then it's, then it's talking to the audience. I want to get a bit personal. I just love your autobiography. In fact, usually I say to people, don't read autobiographies. There are a lot of crap. Uh, people just tell you how wonderful they are. But in your case, it was extraordinary that you took the line you did, and it is. I, I, I said to you the other day, it's the best autobiography, in other words, written by the person about themselves that I've ever written, but, uh, ever read, rather, but so personal. You really, really got personal. Was that necessary? Well, you know, I thought the only people who would ever read it would be my family, and they would know anyway the truth, so I might as well tell it, you know? Um, the, uh, the interesting thing is that lots of people have read it except my sons. They say, well, read it, read it one day, Ma, we live through it. So, you know, um, so that's... Uh, look, I thought it's worth telling the truth. And if, I, if you're going to write an honest assessment of where you were and what you did and how your family coped and what happened, you might as well just tell the right story. And I did. And it's not only a story about my own personal uh, experiences, you know, so it, it's, it's a story of a country trying to become a successful democracy. And you can't believe how rare that is in the world. Far more countries fail than succeed in making a transition to democracy. Far, far, far more. And in a sense, prosperous constitutional democracies under the rule of law, not the rule of man, with open market economies, with freedom, all the freedoms that we can't anymore quite take for granted, such as freedom of speech, the most fundamental freedom. Those are fought for and struggled over centuries. I mean, it's 800 years since the Magna Carta in, in America, I mean, in Britain. We are trying to shortcut history. We're trying to get there in three decades, four decades, which has never been done anywhere in the world, and let alone in a country as plural as ours is. And I see it as such an important thing because the rest of the world is going to have to do exactly the same thing. 
Boundaries and borders mean less and less. The national state over time is going to become obsolete, but it's going to take a long time. But people are going to live in plural, complex societies with huge cultural differences, religious differences and other things. And we have to be able to live together in a context where there's an overarching set of rules like a constitution that guarantees everybody's freedoms and everybody's rights and describes the role of the government and makes sure that people can live lives they value in difficult and complex circumstances. That is rare, rare, rare. And trying to achieve that in South Africa is a huge prize, and I think we can get it right. And that's been my motivating force my whole life. And that was the story I wanted to write, and also the story about how my family supported me, and especially my husband, who's here today, doing exactly the same thing. I get choked up when I think about him. And, <laughs> and my wonderful boys, you know, and they've stuck with me, and they've, and, and they've seen what I have to do, and they've been doing it with me. And eventually, I also got my husband to vote for me, which was a hell of a thing. <laughs> Ukraine. 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 I mean, Ukraine is a very interesting uh, situation. Um, you know, Russia's always regarded Ukraine as part of its territory. And Kazus Beli, um, you know, Putin, like all dictators, wants to mobilize his forces by taking a challenge on and, and going to war. That's what, that's what you do if you're trying to do that. All, all dictators over history have done that. And um, they're trying to undermine a fundamental democracy. But Europe has got a lot to be accountable for here. They've been so inward-looking, so worried about migration and other things. I mean, stuff that they couldn't even begin to deal with the problem South Africa deals with. They couldn't even begin. They're worried about having to bail out weak economies like Germany did with Greece, for example. They are worried about all of these internal things, and they didn't see this incredible opportunity to draw Ukraine much more into NATO and to defend it against the Russian aggression. And that build-up was kind of inevitable if Europe hadn't been so inward-looking. So this whole notion of identity politics plays out internationally on a global stage in very, very dangerous ways. So yes, and look at our, our, our Minister of Defense and our head of our Defense Force celebrating Russian Armed Forces Day with a Russian ambassador on the day that Russia invades Ukraine. That is the kind of mess that you see in the middle of that triangle. And that is why President Ramaphosa can't come out and say, we support Ukraine and we reject Russian aggression. Can't come out and say that because his own party is too divided on it and he is trapped in it. That's why we've got to break open that cage and realign politics. Have you followed the story of Zelensky, the comedian who was written off as, as a nobody and, and is now a, a global icon for many, for and almost like uh, he might have your motto of not without a fight? <laughs> Um, look, Zelensky is a very interesting... F I have, I'm, going to, I'm going to read an, a, a biography of Zelensky. I'm sure there'll be a lot now. They all come up when... And, you know, he's got to prove himself still. I mean, you know, he's suddenly the poster boy of the world. He's still got to prove himself. There's a lot of work that he's got to do. But it's an amazing story. Uh, the nice Jewish boy who was a comedian who, <laughs> who came in there and became president and stood up to a world tyrant. So let's see how it pans out. Um, there's a long way to go. And, um, yeah... It's going to be a big battle, and it's going to be an international battle. That's, that's, that's the triangle model on an international scale. Mm -hmm. Nice Jewish boy. You have 
deep Jewish roots in your background, as one reads in the autobiography. Do you think that's played part in this not without a fight approach of yours, where you just don't, you just don't accept, uh, which we admire, but the world doesn't always agree? Well, um, my parents were both refugees from Germany in different ways and at different times, and they met in South Africa. And my parents had a very strong sense of right and wrong, especially my mother. And I grew up in that environment. And um, it, I thought everyone grew up in that environment. I didn't realize how unusual it was until I went to a high school and started standing up for things that I believed in, and I was in the minority of one. And that kind of was useful to me. It was very useful training. And when I was in the ANC's, you know, the, the UDF and the in conscription campaign and the Black Sash and all of those organizations in the 1980s, I also often found myself as a minority of one because I was a liberal Democrat and I rejected Marxism completely and they all had this materialist analysis and I rejected racial nationalism. I was a very committed non-racialist. And so I got used to that and I got used to fighting for the things I believed in because I believed that South Africa could only succeed not because I believed in them, but I believe South Africa can only succeed on the basis of that, those values. And my parents broke away from the U United Party with the progressives originally. And I remember my parents saying to me and pulling out Yanni Staitler's great statement. And Yanni Staitler is a very underrated leader. He said, one day South Africa will be governed by these principles because it is the only way that it can be governed successfully. And I thought, that is right and I was an 11-year-old girl at the time. So my parents played a huge influence, and, um, and then I got on, on my own path. 10 seconds. Uh, I'd throw a few names at you and, and maybe just give us your thoughts on it, starting off with your husband, uh, mm -hmm. Johan Maria. People don't know, Professor, but I, I think it was you were there with uh, Peter Hain. What, how would you respond to Johan Maria? Well, I would respond to Johan Marie saying um, I was instantly attracted to him when I met him. He was a deep and thoughtful person. He also stood up for what he believed. He paid a massive price. He's an Afrikaans boy from an Afrikaans community. He was fired from the University of the Free State for standing up for his political beliefs. And we were kind of kindred spirits. When we met each other, we thought we, dis we disagreed politically and economically. Our first discussion was an argument about economics. But the important thing was that we had both been alone f in our battles for a long time, and so we were kindred spirits, yeah. Peter Hain? Oh, Peter Hain. <laughs> you know, Peter Hain is a kind of bit of a glory boy, I think, and he, um, he likes to position himself, and, uh, that, but that doesn't mean to say glory boys can't do good work. And he did do some good work, but he liked the limelight. H.H. Hishalima. H.H. Shalima, look, I, I think he's got a huge job on his hands. And um, it is amazing that he won that election. I didn't ever think that he would. And it's wonderful to see liberal Democrats in Africa winning and winning out. Often liberal democracies in, the, uh, in Africa don't quite understand what we do. I mean, the notion of the leader and people being accountable to the leader rather than the leader being accountable to the people is an unbelievable paradigm shift and mind shift that takes centuries 
And that is why it's so difficult to get to constitutional democracies. So often our liberal partners across the whole of Africa, we find are not fundamentally liberal in the sense of understanding accountability, the rule of law, all of those things. But I think Hishalima is as close as, uh, I think he's a good guy and I think he's gonna do great things. And the most important thing was that he got to power through the ballot box without a coup and without a war. And that is a massive step in the right direction. We do have uh, four microphones. So when you're ready for a question, please put your hand up. Last one from my side, Tony Leon. Look, I love Tony Leon. I mean, you know, we fought a lot. If you read his book, he, he, he says some nasty things about me. If you read my book, I say some nasty things about him. But we like each other. You know, he's dead straightforward. He's really clever. He has guts like no one I know. He can take unbelievable pressure. And you've got to tell me which person in the world would have got up and said, Nelson Mandela needs an opposition. Nelson Mandela is the world icon, the saint, but he needs an opposition. And Nelson Mandela said to Tony Leon, come and join my government of national unity. Be a cabinet minister in my cabinet. And Tony Leon said, no, you need an opposition more than you need another cabinet minister. And very few people would have had the insight and the guts to do that. Tony did, and believe me, he put South Africa on the right path for a possible constitutional democracy by that decision.